So today we're going to continue our service. As you can see, it's communion Sabbath, which is a great Sabbath because we haven't had it for a while, so it's great to be here. But we're also continuing our service on the covenant that we've been speaking about last time when we came together two weeks ago. Uh, when I was here, we were preaching about the covenant. And we, so if, if you're new to our church, we've been going through the, this uh, sermon series called The Long Story Short, where we look at the big narrative of the Bible and just kind of centering ourselves in Scripture. And so we've done creation, we've done crisis, and we've looked at covenant now already. And the covenant basically just speaks about the, um, the covenants throughout history um, from the moment that God created humanity until today. And we saw that there's a few things about the covenant that even though there might be differences in wording, there is a DNA to the covenant that God at the heart of it wants to be a God that reveals himself as a God that loves us, a God that cares for us, a God that wants to be there for us. And because we have fallen, because we have sinned, because we have transgressed and we are rebellion, uh, rebe uh, rebellious to God's law, God is still faithful to us. And He wants to justify us. He wants to sanctify us. He wants to reconcile us. And through that process, want to use this opportunity to reveal His character to the world. And so this covenant that God has with us is very important to the Christian story. And so today we're just going to extend that a little bit and spend a little bit more time um, speaking on that. And we're going to talk about how this was seen in the, um, the story of Hosea, how this love of God is prefigured in the story of Isaiah, an Old Testament scroll tucked away um, in what they call the minor prophets. Not minor in their message, but minor in the, the scope of their books. Very short chapters, very short book, um, and we'll spend a bit of time there today. But before we start, let's just pray together. Gracious Father, we come to you, Lord, and we say thank you for your love and your mercy and your grace. Lord, it is a privilege for us to be here today. It is a privilege for us to worship you. Thank you for the beautiful worship that we've already had, Lord. But now as we get into your scripture, Lord, as we open up your word, we pray, Lord, that you'll be with us, that you'll lead us, that you'll guide us, that your spirit would impress upon us the truth that you want us to hear today. Lord, as we come to this beautiful table of the Lamb, to be reminded of the ordinances, Lord, to be reminded of the blood that was shed for us and the body that was broken for us, the feet that we need to wash as your people that are reminded of this ethic of love, of self, of, of, of other-centeredness. We pray, Lord, that this message that we'll speak about today will, um, will not only be in our minds, Lord, but it will transform our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So the book of Isaiah is an interesting book, very short book, very small book. Um, and Isaiah is a man, a prophet, that was called by God for a unique purpose. The word, the name Hosea literally means in Hebrew, to save. It's the shortened version of the word Joshua, which means that God has saved or Yahweh has saved. And we pick up the story in Hosea chapter 1 verse 1 where it says, The word of the Lord came to Hosea. So a, a prophet is a person that's a mediator between God and his people. And so God is generally the one, or not generally, he is the one that chooses. You don't, you, there's no office that you can go to to apply to be a, a prophet. No, 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 God is the one that chooses the prophet. So God chose this individual, Hosea, to be his prophet. And now generally when we read the story, we would skip over these names because they're just names. But they give us a very interesting and important aspect to the story of Hosea. It says, the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, to the son of Beeri, in the days of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the sons of Joash, king of Israel. 
The reason why that is important is that in Israel's history, it shows that there's already division between the northern and the southern uh, uh, parts of, of God's people. And God has already gone through a history with his people as they've gone into the promised land, as they lived there, they wanted a king, they got a king, David, and then Solomon came and the, the kingdom broke, after, broke up after him. And since then, there has been this perpetual cycle of, of idolatry, this perpetual cycle where God's people move away, this perpetual cycle where God's people are like, I can do this by myself, a perpetual cycle where God's people are saying, we don't really need you until we need you. But until we really, really need you, we're going to do this by ourselves. A perpetual cycle that we all fall into every single day. Uh, a perpetual cycle of independence and idolatry. And God had sent them various prophets, various warnings, but yet they did not listen. So God sends the word, the, the word of the Lord came to Hosea. Now, what's interesting about the book of Hosea is that God comes to him in, in interesting ways. Generally, a prophet would receive the word of the God and he would go and preach, right? Difficult uh, subject matter that he did generally have to preach. They were not respected individuals during, God, uh, during, the, um, during those times because they brought harsh messages. They brought messages that the people didn't want to know. But this assignment of Isaiah is completely different. This is an acted parable where God is saying, I'm choosing you to do something. When the, Lord, when, when the Lord first spoke to Isaiah, the Lord said to him, Hosea, go and take to yourself a wife of whoredom. How many of you would, would say, yeah, God, I, I would want to have that assignment. I would choose to be your prophet, and I would choose to say yes to this assignment. Go and take for you a wife of whoredom and children of whoredom and the land because the land commits great whoredom, forsaking the Lord. God is saying to Hosea, my people are doing something. They are prostituting themselves to these pagan gods that are not even gods. They are just things. They are made of elements that I created. And they prostitute themselves. They leave me. This covenant that we have made, they leave that for these things that cannot do anything. And yet I send prophet after prophet after prophet, but yet they do not hear and yet they do not see. So now you, Hosea, the prophet of the Lord, go and take a prostitute wife. Let them see the man of God, the man that they would see that was sent by God. Go into that part of town that the man of God should not be found. And let him go to the marketplace and see that prostitute, which most of them know who she is, and go and buy her and take her. Make a covenant with her and say and promise that you will be my wife and I will be your husband and I will give myself to you and you must give yourself to me and I promise you that I will always be with you and for you through sickness and in health, through ups and downs, until death do us part. Go, Hosea, go and find a prostitute and marry her. Not an easy assignment, don't you think? Not an assignment we would like to, to, to put our hands up for. But yet Hosea goes. So he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And then the rest of the story as you continue the chapter, 
You see these children that are born. The first son, Jezreel, which means God scatters. The next son, uh, daughter, actually, Lo-Ami, means no mercy. And then Lo-Ami, not my people. God gives them children, actual individuals, people that breathe, that walk around. And God gives them names so that, so that God says that the people will know that you, my, my person, my prophet, the one that pro- proclaims my gospel, you will have actual children There will be consequences to your acts of marrying this woman and birthing children and they will walk around and they will be people that will speak the message that have been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years. That you do not listen, that you will be scattered, that there are consequences to your actions of idolatry and independence. There are actions to your sins that I will scatter. I will have no mercy on you. I will say that you are not my people. Can you see the anguish of God here? That's the story of Hosea, a God that is an anguished lover because he has been rejected by his own. God comes and says, I cannot just let this be anymore. You are are committing atrocities. You are committing idolatry. You're committing sin here. I cannot let you go, but yet I cannot just, I cannot let this be anymore. God somehow doesn't, doesn't really know what to do, but yet he needs to do something. On one hand, He cannot say that what they are doing is okay, but on the other hand, he cannot just let them go, so he needs to do something. And so we get to Isaiah chapter three. Isaiah chapter three. The story of God calling Hosea to go. This idea of reproof and reckoning and restoration has gone on for so long. This is an Old Testament cycle that just keeps on going on where God says they need to be reproved. They need to be told what they are doing wrong. They are hurting themselves and hurting people around them. They've broken covenant. And God sends them a warning through the prophet that there will be a reckoning. And some of them will be restored, but some of them won't. But God wants everybody to be to be restored. And so he tells to Isaiah, after he had married her, after they have birthed these children, after people have seen this, this woman once again goes back to her own ways and prostitutes herself again. She goes back to her old sinful ways. And you would imagine to say to Isaiah, just dust off the dust of your feet and go. Leave her. She has chosen to reject you. Just let it be. But God doesn't do that. In one of the shortest chapters in the book of Isaiah, we read this. And the Lord said to me, the Lord comes to his person again. He comes to his prophet again. Go again. What does that word again mean? Go again, because you, like you've gone before. This is not his first rodeo. This is not his first time that his wife has left him. This is not the first time that she has fallen back into idolatry, fallen back into to, uh, uh, prostitution, fallen back into her own ways. But you, Hosea, my person, my prophet, the one that is supposed to live out my message, go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man. And is, an adul- and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they return to other gods and the love of raisin cakes. Can you, can you imagine what that would have looked like? Can you imagine the, the heartache of Hosea 
and his prostitute wife leaving him again. And God says, Hosea, go again. Can you imagine how painful is that pursuit? How sullen is that search when Hosea goes around into the city looking for his prostitute wife? Walking around, hey, hey, have you seen, have you seen Goma? Oh, no, 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 sorry, sorry, I didn't. Walking into the red light district, walking into the place where all the brothels are, walking into that place knowing that this is not the place where a man of God is supposed to be. Walking around and says, hey, have you seen my wife? Oh, who's your wife? Oh, Goma. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry, man. Um, yeah, I, I saw her a few nights ago around the corner, at, at that corner, you know? Walking around asking more people, where is she? Where is she? And the more you're searching for, the more you are realizing where you are and what the situation is, knowing what she's up to, knowing what's going on, remembering the heartache, remembering the history, remembering all of these things, and he's going searching for his wife. How tough is that? And finally, he finds her. Finds her on the marketplace. Find her selling her body again. Selling herself again. To people who don't love her. To men who want to use her and abuse her. That objectify her and throw her away. Here is a man who loves his wife in the most purest way. And yet she chooses to reject that and leave. And here he's coming again. And she leaves to people and places that cannot satisfy, that cannot give her what she really wants, to love and be loved, to know, to know and be known. She breaks the covenant. She goes away. And then here in verse 2 it says, And so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a letech of barley. <laughs> Can you imagine? He's already made the vows. He's already paid the betrothal stuff. He's paid the dowry. They've married. She is his and he is hers. And he goes there. He could have walked in and said, Hey, that's my wife. Imagine there going to the marketplace. There's the pimp standing there selling all of these prostitutes. He's walking up and be like, Hey, Goma, let's go home. And the pimp's like, oh, sorry, I don't know who you are, but that's my girl. No, 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 that's my wife. I don't care who she is to you. I'll tell you who she is now. She's mine. And again, he has to go and open his wallet and pay for something that's already his. Pay for something that he's already bought. Something that's already his. And then he says this to her. He said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. In that moment, can you, can you see the beauty of the situation? This man, his heart is broken. He is ashamed. He's, all of these things are going on. He goes to the marketplace of sin to find his wife in the, in the process of selling herself. And he gets there and he makes the covenant with her right there. And he says to her, come back to me. Let's covenant with each other again that you will be mine and I will be yours. There was a story in 1936. New York Times ran the story of an engineer 
who was busy working at a radio station, um, and there was a massive message that was going to come out from England. Uh, King Edward was going to send a message um, to the people in England, and it was going to be um, it was going to be uh, transferred or communicated to New York, and then from New York to 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 um, all the states in America and in Canada. And a minute before the transmission would come through, there was something happened to the wire, the main wire that would trans- give the transmission, and it broke for some reason. And a minute before this massive message would go out, and they're like, what are we going to do? And the engineer, in a moment of ingenious thought, ran and grabbed the two wires and held it there, the whole transmission. And so the message of the king of England throughout the whole of America and Canada was, was moving through that one engineer. To a a degree, this is exactly what's happening here. The gospel of God, the grace of God, the message of God is being shown out in actual form through Hosea. God is sending his prophet and he says to him, I want you to go to my people that for hundreds of years have been committing adultery and prostituting themselves to other nations that don't care for them, other gods that don't exist, and they keep on going back and back and back to these places that is nothing and cannot give them anything. He says, I want you to go and go again and find her and marry her and covenant with her again. And verse four says, for the children of Israel shall dwell many days without a king or a prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without an ephod or without household gods. After the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear of the Lord to the goodness and the, in their latter days. What's beautiful about this is this is actually a projection of Jesus to come. When he says here that they will return and seek after the Lord their God and David the king, he is not talking about David the king. This is after David. David is dead and gone. He's saying there will be a Davidic figure. I don't know what his name is, but I know who he will be. He will be like King David. Now we know that that's Jesus. Jesus has come as the son of David and the son of Abraham, the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, the ultimate king, the one that came and stepped into that place. He was the one that's completely faithful. Here we see God struggling with the emotions, struggling with this idea that he loves these people so much, but they keep on prostituting themselves. They keep on moving away. They keep on committing adultery. They keep on doing these things. And God says, I am a God of justice. And so I need to do something, but I'm also a God of love. So what will I do? So I send my only son so that the justice will be met. But yet there's a way of salvation for them so that they can become my people again. They have broken my covenant and there are consequences to that. But I will take those consequences of broken covenant on myself. I will forgive them of their sins. I will forgive them of their transgressions. I will forgive them for their iniquity. I will forgive them for their adultery. I will forgive them for their prostitution. I will forgive them for going to these uh, uh, false idols. I will forgive them for that and I will absorb the consequences of that so that we can be reconciled again so that they can be one with us again. That's the story of salvation. That's the story of the gospel. That's the story that brought us here this morning. You see, many times when we think about salvation, we get so confused. We, we sometimes feel like we're not good enough yet. I cannot do this. I, cannot, I, I, I need to you know, perform and do all of these things. Salvation is very easy. Salvation is very simple. There's, there's two elements to that, God's initiative and our response. 
That's what salvation is. God has done the stuff already. He has given the initiative. We're merely responding to His grace. We're merely responding to what He has done. Let me break it down for you very simply. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. Not God didn't love the world until we needed to do something before He loves us. No, no, no. God, for God so loved the world when we were still in the marketplace of sin, when we were still in our idolatry, when we were still thinking that we, we're the bee's knees and we can do whatever we want without God, when we were still transgressors, when we were still sinners, when we were still enemies to God's kingdom, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. He's the one that takes the initiative. He's the one that gives, that whoever believes in Him, responds to that giving, should not perish but have eternal life. We generally just read that one verse, but the next verse, for God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, to say, oh, you guys are so bad. No, no, no. He sent His Son, why? In order that the world might be saved through Him. That's God's gift. That's His initiative. Our response, if we confess our sins, we respond to what He has done for us, then we confess. We're like, oh man, Lord, I, I realize what I've done. How? What an idiot. Can I believe? Then we confess our sins. He is what? He is faithful. He is faithful like Hosea. He is faithful and he has never been anything but faithful to the covenant that he has with us. He is faithful and just. Don't you love that idea that he is both faithful and just? That he's not saying, well, I didn't look at their bad things. He's like, no, 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 I know exactly who they are. I know exactly where they come from. I know exactly what they've been up to. And I, there's consequences to that. And so I'm not going to mitigate the consequences. I'm not going to negate them and say, oh, those consequences. No, no, no. Those consequences are real. And I'll deal with them. He is faithful and just. To what? To forgive us. The word forgiveness in the original means to absorb the blow. So when you're forgiving something, you're, you're absorbing a lot of the blow of what that person did. That's exactly what Jesus did. Isaiah 53, because our sins was placed on him. He, he was the man of sorrow because he took our, our sins and our sufferings. He forgives us our sins and cleanses us. He doesn't merely, he doesn't merely take us as we are, but he, he transforms us and changes us, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So here's what a breakdown of that would look like in practical terms. There's drawing grace, something that we call provenient grace. God is the one that draws us. He's the one that awakens us to this reality that we are sinners and we need salvation. He's the one that reminds us of the process where we are and the situation that we're in and reminds us of the sin and reminds us of all of these things and then reminds us of His grace, so He's drawing us. We call it provenient grace. Then we start to realize, as this process happens, we realize that we need to change. We realize that, man, I'm on the wrong road here. Like, I'm on, I'm, I'm on the wrong highway here. I need to turn around. I need to do something. That's where repentance comes in. The word repentance literally means the turning of the mind, metanoia, the turning of the mind. It's literally, I'm going this way, and I need to turn to that way. That's exactly what repentance is. Now, if you think about this process, the drawing grace, that's the Holy Spirit working on you. The a desire for change, that comes because the Holy Spirit is working on you and you're responding to that. Repentance, the Holy Spirit working on you and you're just working with the Holy Spirit, right? And then comes confession, where you're repenting from that idea and saying, man, I need to, I need to say sorry. Lord, I'm sorry that I've done this. Like you're coming, becoming aware of how bad it is and you want to confess, that's a natural response of, of the, of the, sanctify, or the, the justifying and sanctifying process is you're saying, 
wow, I need to say sorry about this because I really do feel sorry. And then you move to a point where God gives you forgiveness. That's what we call justifying grace. But then as he justifies you, in the moment that he justifies you, he starts to sanctify you. He starts to make you better. He starts to make you holy. He starts transforming your, uh, your, your desires. He starts transforming your mind. You start liking things that you never really thought that you would like, and you start disliking things that you've always liked. He starts transforming your heart. And then you see that you want to start doing things. Your faith starts to work. You see, we always get to, is, is it faith or works that I'm saved by? Is it faith or works? No, no, it's faith that works. Christianity is not just the thing that you believe. Christianity is the thing that you believe and the thing that you do. Your faith moves you to start acting in a specific way. And then there's the empowering grace where God starts to empower you with gifts and, and spiritual giftings where you start serving the church and serving God and serving people because that's how you want to live. And through that whole process, we get to perfection. Perfection literally means Christian maturity, becoming a mature Christian in Jesus. Isn't that a beautiful idea? That God saw us, in a sense, metaphorically, at the marketplace of sin, as idolaters and, 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 and people that are in desperate need. And he takes us, just like Hosea took his bride, takes back home, and doesn't merely forgive, but says, I've got an, an, a new thing for you. Take off those old clothes, put on the new clothes. Forget the way that you live there, there's a new way to live now. Don't just do the things that you used to do there. There's new things to do now. And you don't do it in your own power. You do it because God's power is in you. We sometimes think that we have to do all of these things by ourselves. It's the Spirit working with us all the time. It's grace working with us, in, with us all the time. These ideas of acted parables, how Hosea comes, is replete in Scripture, where God gives us these things. The sanctuary doctrine is another one. The way that the sanctuary works is, is an acted parable to, for us to understand salvation. In the New Testament, right, and if you think about it, that's what the covenants are, the covenantal signs. For instance, last, week, last time we spoke about the, the circumcision. Circumcision was a symbol, a sign, an actual etched in the skin to remember that the seed was going to come, right? If you think about the symbol of, of, the, uh, of Noah, the bow, every time you see that you're reminded of something, that's what these covenantal signs are. They're reminders of certain things. The Sabbath, weekly Sabbath, is a weekly reminder of something. In the New Testament, there's two other additional things that God gives us, right? We call them ordinances. It comes from the French word to, to command, to do, because God commanded us to do these things. We sometimes call them rituals as well, right? The first one is baptism. Baptism is such a beautiful one. Jesus speaking in John chapter 3 says, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying, baptism is an outward, uh, outward showing of an inward reality. You don't get saved when you are baptized. You're already saved by then because you've already listened to God's drawing on you. You've already repented. You've already, for, you've already asked for forgiveness. When you get to the point of baptism, you're saying, God, there's already something that has happened in my heart and I want to go now and symbolically go down into the waters and resurrect again. It's a symbol of dying to, dying to self. The water is a symbol of death, of the grave. You're dying and then you're resurrecting anew, fresh, 
and saying, Lord, this is a new life that I have now, a, a new spirit that I have. Have you been baptized before? If you haven't, why not? Like, it's literally that simple. Why haven't you? No, I'm not ready yet. When are you going to be ready? When are you going to make that decision? Because God's like, why wait? Why wait to, to walk this journey? Why wait? If you want to be baptized, come speak to me. Speak to Pastor Lyndon. Speak to Pastor Andrew. Speak to any of the elders here. Because why wait? Baptism is the beginning of the journey. We're saying, Lord, I can feel your heart. You're tugging on my heartstrings. You've done something in my life. I want to live this new reality. I want to walk in newness with you in this covenant relationship, Lord. I don't want to wait. I don't have to fix myself. Now, there's some fixing to do. Yes, 100%. But God does it in us. Every day, justification. Every day, sanctification. Every day, regeneration. As we move closer and closer. Well, the beautiful thing about baptism, Paul speaking, he says, For if one spirit we are baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, for all were made to drink of one spirit. He says that when you're baptized, you're baptized into the body. You're baptized into the people of God. You know, you become part of, of something bigger than yourselves. And then the next one, which is what we're going to do today, is the foot washing and the, the Lord's Supper. And the foot washing is a beautiful, beautiful ordinance to, to, to uh, live. Because in John chapter 13, Jesus gives the reason for why we wash feet. And for some of you, this might be a new experience to come to church and wash somebody else's feet. You're like, don't you have a shower at home, right? Um, but there's something very beautiful that it's symbolic of. Jesus is here with his disciples. He's about to die. He's about to sacrifice himself on the cross for our sins. And before that, he, he takes the towel, which generally is something that a slave would do. Here's the rabbi with his disciples. If there is a hierarchy in that sociological environment, he is at the top. The disciples would not even wash each other's feet because there would be a slave that would come and wash their feet. But for some reason, they didn't organize a slave or their slave is not there. So they're all looking around and be like, come on, boys, who's going who's gonna, to, right? And so Jesus takes the towel and he starts washing their feet. And he says this, when he had washed their feet and put out his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done for you? Because he knew that they don't always get what he was doing. So he says to them, do you, do you realize what's going on here? Do you, do you realize what's, what's at play here? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right to do so. If you, you'd know who I am, I am the rabbi, I am the Lord, I am the teacher. When you think about hierarchies, yes, I am at the top. For if then your Lord and teacher wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Jesus, what he's doing here, he's, he's, he's shifting categories. He's, he's turning things around and he's saying, yes, he says, I am the rabbi. And yes, he says, I am the Lord. I am the master. I am the one that's at the top. But when you're at the top, what you really do is that you serve the people at the bottom. That's what kingdom ethics is about. Kingdom ethics, Christianity is not coming and merely listening to beautiful sermons and singing a few songs and that's your Christian duty. No, no, Christian duty is to serve. To serve like Joel serves. Year in and year out, serving because the Lord called us to serve. That's what Christian life is about. And so when we partake of this, this is a simple reminder of the God that we follow. When we go out here in a few minutes and wash each other's feet, we are reminded of the journey that we're on. That when we wash each other's feet, we're like, this is what my life should be moved by, by service. And so when you do that, you have to ask yourself 
But let me reflect on my life. Is my day in and day out reflected by this kind of ethics, where my life is moved by service for others? Or do I live a life that I want to be served by others? Do I come to this church to be served, or do I come to this church to serve? Because true Christians come to this church to serve, not to be served. If you come to this church to be served, you have to really reassess your Christianity. You have to really ask yourself, am I the kind of Christian that Jesus was? Now, there is this give and take where we need to serve and be served, right? That's what we'll see when we go and wash the feet. Because you give space for the other to serve as well. But that doesn't mean that you're not serving. That's the beauty of this. This recalibrates. Just like the Sabbath recalibrates our thoughts, this recalibrates our, th- our thinking about what is really true about life, what is really important about life. John 13, For if I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is the messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. God is actually putting a blessing on this idea of serving others, of being the one that is willing to wash the lowliest part of the body, the feet. He's actually putting a blessing there. He's not putting a blessing there to be served, which we generally put it, oh, how blessed am I so that people can walk around me and, and you know, serve me. No, 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 the kingdom ethics is turned around and says you will be blessed when you serve. And then the Lord's Supper, Matthew chapter 26 says, now, as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after, the, after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink all of it, for this is my blood of the covenant. Once again, that idea of covenant. When Jesus was sitting there at the table, just after he had washed the feet, He's breaking the bread. He's giving the wine. On his mind, he remembers covenant. He remembers what he's about. He remembers that he is Jesus the Christ. He remembers that Jesus means Yahweh will save. That is closely connected to Hoshia will save. He remembers the story of covenant. He remembers the rebellion. He remembers all the history. He's doing it at the night of the Passover to remember that he is the land that will be sacrificed for Israel. He remembers the adultery, the prostitution. He remembers the idolatry. He remembers all of those things and he breaks his bread and says, my body will be broken in a few hours and my blood will be let in a few hours for my people. So when we come to this table, when we take the bread and we take the wine, we are reminded that just like Gomer, we were in the marketplace of sin. Just like Gomer, we continually and perpetually go to idols that cannot help us and cannot save us. But hopefully, we will respond positively like Gomer to the call of Jesus when he comes. And he says, come, 
Come, let us go home. Let us go and be cleansed. Let us go and be justified. Let us go and be sanctified. Let's live a life that you have truly been called to live. Let us repair covenant. Let us come together again and you will be my people and I will be your God.